Coming up on the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. I went in completely exhausted, mm. you know, adrenally fatigued, um, exist, t- tired, on empty, and then to start this 2,000 kilometer or, you know, 1,250 mile adventure. It was always going to end in catastrophe and not too many spoilers if people want to read my book or watch the documentary, but I passed out while cycling on, on my bike and my crew found me unresponsive while cycling. I passed out again running on, uh, during the running leg. I tore a muscle, you know, the goalpost changed. Um, I, you know, nearly got hit by a car a couple of times. All these sort of things. There's so many setbacks and it was a massive learning experience, but also at the same time, uh, it was also to understand that how not to do big endurance challenges, but also how health plays a massive part in doing anything, whether it's a big ultra endurance challenge or you're trying to run your fastest 5K or lift your heaviest one rep max. Hello, and welcome to the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. I'm Brian Grin, and I'm here to give you actionable tips to get your body back to what it once was 5, 10, even 15 years ago. Each week, I'll give you an in-depth interview with a health expert from around the world to cut through the fluff and get you long-term sustainable results. This week, I interviewed ultra-endurance athlete, author, speaker, and coach, Luke Tybersky. We discussed his life journey through overcoming depression, binge eating, and insomnia, through becoming an ultra-endurance athlete, along with his incredible run from Morocco to Monaco, generating momentum with 1% thinking, how to get started with running, becoming a high achiever, and his one tip to get your body back to what it once was. I really enjoyed my interview with Luke. I know you will too. Thanks so much for listening and enjoy the show. All right. Welcome to the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. My name is Brian Grin, and I have Luke Tybersky on. Welcome to the show. G'day, Brian. Absolute pleasure to be on your show. I'm excited to get chatting. Yeah. Excited to have you on, TEDx speaker, event host, you speak all over, ultra-endurance athlete. Uh, Before we get into a few different topics, perhaps maybe give the background of what got you into ultra-marathons, and now I know you coach a lot as well, what sort of sparked your interest that way? Yeah, I'll I'll keep the the long story story short, but (laughs) basically, I grew up um, playing soccer in australia and i was fortunate enough to be able to travel around the world and play professional uh, at certain levels and when i retired i felt lost i was depressed started with my mental health and i had no idea what i was going to do with the rest of my life really because uh, i had this loss of identity that now i wasn't a soccer player anymore so i threw myself into ultra marathon running and ultra endurance sports and i signed up to my first ever race which is called the Marathon de Sables, and it's running the equivalent of six marathons in seven days, self-supported through the middle of the Sahara Desert. Mm. So that is the short story of how I got into ultra marathons and ultra endurance sports. Well, you didn't hold anything back huh, for your first event. <laughs> Just dove I, right in there, huh? I was on a journey of, um, for lack of a better word, a phrase, self-discovery. As I said, I, I was battling with my mental health. I was battling with this loss of identity changing careers as so many people do and instead of actually taking stock and doing it in a more healthier way i went down what some people excuse me seen at the time as a healthy route but it was really unhealthy where i I dove into basically 
punishing myself for not knowing what I wanted to do and taking on these extreme challenges. So there was a a bit of a dark side to it as well. And you see this a lot with athletes, uh, soccer, football, whatever they play professionally, their careers are, you know, over with at an early age. And then they sort of don't know that's all they've lived with and they've done for the last, however many years. Um, that's obviously something that you went through. Uh, and so was running like your outlet, was that your way to just get your competitive juices flowing and, and, um, you know, have something to work towards. Yeah, it definitely was because obviously you you sign up for even like that big marathon to Saab's race. It was in six months. I had six months to turn myself into a, a, an ultra marathon runner. Yes, I was very disciplined with my approach to training because I'd been a professional my entire life. My back, I have a background in exercise science. I have a degree in that. And I've worked with coaching um, people one-to-one from a health and personal training and fitness perspective for over 20 years. So I had all these tools and this knowledge that I was able to implement for myself to go out and train for these events. And yes, you've got to put the preparation in because you just have to train and prepare for these because there's just no, you can't really sort of just wing it, uh, these big extreme challenges. So it did give me a purpose. It gave me a goal. Like as a team sports, you have a goal each week, you play a match. Uh, each year you have a season and all these types of things. Whereas now it was for me, it was each event or each challenge or each adventure I came up with was my goal. So like felt like I had a purpose in life, but it was really sort of short term. It was like, okay, I did that one. Now what's the next one? Now what's the next one? And I was still sort of functioning with massive blinkers on because I still didn't have this, um, time to grieve is probably the best way to describe it. This loss of soccer in my life, this change of um, career. And I just sort of moved on to the next thing. And, and it and it came back to bite me in the backside several years later when my mental health really plummeted. So although it did give me a goal, it was almost like a, a Band-Aid on a massive wound that I wasn't ready to treat yet. And what what was, uh, if you don't mind explaining a little bit about your struggles with, with mental health, what was that you know sort of time period for you and how did you overcome that yeah it was sort of on and off for about seven or eight years um where i really struggled with depression uh, at times uh binge eating as well uh, i had insomnia for a couple of years and when it was at its worst for about six or eight months i was sleeping mm-hmm. anywhere between eight to ten hours a week some nights i wouldn't even go to bed i would get to sort of like 10 11 o'clock and watch a movie uh and then gorge myself on a tub of ice cream and and a pack of nuts and stuff like that and then feel really low feel like i wanted to beat myself up sort of thing i put my running shoes on and go and run for four or five hours the sun would rise and then i would continue on my day so mm-hmm. there was this detrimental self-harming behavior of uh i didn't feel great so i wanted to feel something so in order to go and feel something i would go and push my body to its limits by running four or five hours at midnight or two o'clock in the morning, ride my bike uh, throughout. I live in England, throughout the small country lanes near where I live and not really caring what's happening. So there was that element to it as well with the binge eating, the insomnia. And then it got so bad that I didn't, I couldn't deal with the pain anymore. And twice I stood on tops of bridges, not wanting to, to live anymore. And throughout this sort of seven or eight year period, I went and saw therapists and psychologists and I did my own personal work. I I hid myself from the world. I masked what I was going through. I lied. I acted. I did all these things. And it really came to a head 
um, at the end of 2015, when I did this big adventure, I created a 2000 kilometer and 12 day swim, cycle and run from Morocco to Monaco. I dubbed the ultimate triathlon. And there's a documentary on Amazon Prime, uh, or on Amazon, I should say, uh, about this, where I finished this big challenge and I felt so empty, the most empty I've ever felt in my life. Physically, I absolutely hammered myself. And it took me 18 months to physically recover from this because my endocrine system, and this is something that you know, we, we can dive into even further, but my endocrine system was started to not work, not function properly. So um, my growth hormones stopped secreting. So it was basically zero, um, which is a precursor to testosterone, uh, which is not good as uh, as a male who was at the time you know, in his early 30s. Um, my immune system was extremely compromised. I was just constantly like having little small illnesses. Um, I was just exhausted. My nervous system was fried. So all these things, and it made me stop. It made me stop and let my body recover. And it was in that period of about 18 months where I went back to therapy. I did some more self-work and I tried to look at my life. Okay, like what have, what have I got? What do I want? Who am I? What support systems do I have? All of these things that, that I think is healthy to do on a regular basis, regular every 12 months, every five years or whatever it is for you, or even every month, if there's a lot going on in your life to actually stop and take stock of what is in your life, what do you have, what help do you have on hand to support. And I did that over an 18 month period. And that's what really got me out of um, this dark hole of depression and the mental health uh, issues that I mentioned before. And I really opened up and I told my whole story. I started to speak about it after I did all that personal work. And then I went a step further and wrote all about it in my book, Chasing Extreme. So there's quite literally everything's out there. So I'm an open book. Mm. Uh, I'd have no skeletons in my closet. I sort of used the phrase, I don't even have a closet anymore because everything's out there. And it was like the last piece of my puzzle of um, uh, sort of self-healing. Is probably the best way to put it and, and so that's where i've got to today and that was sort of 2018 when that all sort of finalized the book was out and i i sort of finally was comfortable with who i am and what i was doing what i was trying to achieve and yeah so i've been living life and smiling and, and helping people and telling my story on stages and keynote talks all around the world ever since yeah wow thank you for sharing that um and that that ultra triathlon that you put together from Morocco to Monaco, uh, that was twelve. I, I it was like two hundred kilometers, right? Two thousand kilometers, <laughs> and uh, one thousand two hundred forty-three miles. I did it just for people listening so they understand. And and so that was something that you put together, and it was um, it took a big toll on you, obviously. And you did a documentary on it. I'm assuming you don't do anything like that now since then. <laughs> Uh, I've not done anything that big. I yeah. had a few big projects uh, coming up. I had a big project that I was planning on doing a couple of years ago, but obviously with the whole pandemic thing, that sort of uh, stopped that. So I'm still planning some big things. However, my uh, my view of my own health and my preparation and taking care of myself from a you know, for lack of a better word, my, uh, from a holistic perspective, is so much healthier these days. Um, so whenever I do my next big, big thing, I've, I've done week-long things since then um, and extreme endurance challenges since then. 
but uh, nothing of that stature. But yeah, it, there's more coming. But my my support systems, my preparation, um, is 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 a lot healthier these days than back mm. then because I went in completely exhausted, mm. you know, adrenally fatigued, um, exist t- tired, on empty, and then to start this two thousand kilometer or you know twelve hundred fifty mile adventure. It was always going to end in catastrophe and not too many spoilers if people want to read my book or watch the documentary, but I passed out while cycling on, on my bike and my crew found me unresponsive while cycling. I passed out again running on, uh, during the running leg. I tore a muscle, you know, the goalpost changed. Um, I, you know, nearly got hit by a car a couple of times. All these yeah. sort of things. There's so many setbacks and it was a massive learning experience, but also at the same time, uh, it was also to understand that how not to do big endurance challenges, but also how health plays a massive part in doing anything, whether it's a big ultra endurance challenge or you're trying to run your fastest 5K or lift your heaviest one rep max. And so you've got to take health into account. Yeah, it's like the preparation along with like allowing yourself to recover <laughs> going into it. Um Perhaps touch on now you're you're coaching ultra marathoners. Um, these individuals are running races that I'm assuming when you're an ultra marathoner, what what are like the length of the the races that they're doing and and what's yeah, the preparation so like? Yeah, most races, um, and this is to you know like sort of blanket a blanket phrase. Most races are around the 50 mile, uh, 100k, which is about 62 miles, um, uh, 100 miles. Or you'll get a multi-stage race of 150 miles plus. Um, there are now races 200 miles non-stop um, that take several days. Um, the 100 mile used to be the benchmark, but now 200 milers, 300 milers are all coming in. It's 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 pretty crazy. But I would say, well, the biggest races in the world in terms of mass participation, uh, 50 miles, 100 miles, uh, 100k and your five day or seven day, 155 miles in a week, uh, ish. Um, they're the, they're sort of the races that, that most people do. The people are doing this for a living. People uh, some, are... some people are, there's a select, there's a select okay. few that are doing it for a living. There is getting more and more money into ultra running. Um, so running brands and things like that are sponsoring these athletes. Um, but the majority is, like marathon runners and there's very few professionals but most people just do it for fun believe it or not go and run through the mountains for like 30 hours and pay you know thousand dollar entry fee and get a buckle or a medal at the end and that's what people do for fun i get it most people don't but you know (laughs) everyone's funds are different right yeah that's for sure and uh I'm, i'm assuming a part of it's like becomes addictive to some degree for these individuals yeah yeah, like I'm putting my hand up for all the people who aren't watching and listening. Like I was definitely addicted to endurance sports um, and my addiction fueled through the element of self-harm, as I mentioned before, because I was feeling so low and I felt numb with life. So doing big endurance benches was a way of performing self-harm on myself to feel something, to feel alive, to feel great. But then it was just like, okay, then do more and then do more and then do more. And I was overtraining and I was over... I didn't necessarily do a lot of races, but I did a lot of our own personal challenges. So I was doing two more of those, too many of those. And yeah, you, you, I see people 
online and in person meeting people who are addicted, who are doing too much. And you know, unless they're my athlete who I coach up, I'm not anyone to say anything because you don't know what they're going through. You know, I know what I was going through and then someone would say something to me and, you know, I completely ignore them. But definitely addictive because you know you're pushing yourself you do a you do a 50 miler and you're like what if i can do 100k and do 100k what if i can do a 100 miler you do a 100 miler what if i can do a 100 miler in the mountains what if i can do a 100 miler um in the cold in the heats what if i can do a five stage day stage race so it is addictive because one element is the the physical feedback you get the challenge the feeling of accomplishment when you finish something that you go through so much pain you go through so many highs and lows. Um, but then I think also a lot of people, let me, let me take that back. There are a portion of people who come into ultra running in a similar, not so much dissimilar way to me, um, that they're running away from something. And this is an opportunity to go out and run for hours and hours and hours to run away from whatever issues they're dealing with. And they can get away with it because that's what everyone else is doing around them. So they put themselves into these communities. And as I said, it, that is a portion, a small portion of people who do it. But the other side of it is the community is amazing. They're so supportive and welcoming. So it's it's hard to sort of like not just sort of pull yourself out when everyone else is just having a good time like yourself. And the people that are like yourself at one point are trying to sort of run away from certain things within their lives. What sort of got you out of it? I know you talked about you, was it mainly talking with someone? Um... Yeah, look, it was, it was a combination of things. I got to a point, um, and this is the only real advice I'll give to people in terms of if, if they are struggling with their mental health, and, and it's only because I, I used it for myself and it worked. Um, I got to a point where I realized something had to change. I knew there was an issue. I knew there was something wrong, and I couldn't keep living like this because, as I said, back. I stood on tops of bridges twice. It's like I, I don't, want, I don't want to roll the dice on the third time. You know, I was, I was very um, happy that I, I found the strength in those moments to pull myself back off. But I realised something had to change, and I knew because I was doing this cycle for years, I couldn't do it myself. So I had a choice. I had an option. I could talk to a family member, a loved one. Uh, and tell them what I was going through, tell them how I felt, and ask them for help. Or I could do option B and go and see a stranger who knew nothing about me. I could tell them as much or as little as I wanted to, but I needed to talk. And I looked at those two options, and I went, you know what? There's no way in hell right now I'm going to go and talk to my parents or my girlfriend at the time or my best friends who I've known for 20, 30 years. I'm not ready to open up to them. So I went and talked to a stranger and started to drip feed things that I was going through and realized actually talking and the tools they gave me was really helpful. And then I went off and worked on those tools over time. So my advice is always just when you're realizing you're struggling, the best thing you can do is look at those two options. Can I talk to a stranger? Because they don't know who you are. You can tell them as little or as much as you want. Or if you don't want to talk to a stranger, find someone who you truly trust, uh, who you love and you know that they love you. And there is no judgment and just start to talk to them. So that's what I did. I started to speak to a stranger. Um, I got some tools. I worked on those tools and then I ended up opening up to the rest of my community and my family, uh, I should say first, and then my friends and then my community as well. Yeah. Thank you. And yeah, relying on that support system obviously is really important, like that you're not alone through whatever you're going through. Uh, I noticed your TED talk 
perhaps touch a little bit on that. Uh, the title is Generate Momentum with 1% Thinking. Uh, so w- maybe give the gist of, of the talk and, and how it applies to you know your life and others. Yeah, so I, I've been talking about this concept for many, many years, and I had the opportunity to get on the TEDx stage, and I thought, why not? So we are encouraged to always be positive because we know thinking negatively doesn't help. Even from a neuroscience perspective, we, we can see that, that it is detrimental, thinking negative and even saying um, negative things out loud. So naturally, we're told to be positive. When something bad happens, just be positive. You know, fake it till you make it. All these phrases come out. You know, always be positive. Positivity is, you know, whatever. But through my own experience uh, in life uh, and during my endurance challenges, sometimes when something goes wrong, you can't be positive. And you know you can't be negative at the same time. So I'm like, well, well what do I do? So I came up with this idea that why can't we be less negative? Okay. So we're not being negative, being less negative. So mm-hmm. I thought, okay, I'll play, this is like a string I pulled on for years. I played around with to try and be able to articulate how I think and the principles and the processes I go through. Because as you know, like in everyone's goes through their heads, they have sort of people say, well, how did you do that? And you can't really articulate it. Well, I just did it. What are the mechanisms? So I played around to try and find what they were. And I realized I used the analogy as like a car. If something negative happens or you put yourself in reverse and you're driving a stick, a manual, right? Um, You can't just necessarily go from reverse and put it into fifth gear and expect to go flying. You know, I'm going to be so positive. I'm pumped up. Yeah, I'm going to be the most positive person in the world when something happens. So there has to be a process, a sequence to go through from slowing down, going back into neutral, and then going through the steps to move forward. And then I put into a place of, okay, well, what are some of the most uh, negative things that could happen in someone's life? And I thought about it, okay, well, how does this concept apply? If you lose a loved one, you know, that's brutal. You know, I'm unfortunately I have lost several in my life. And it's like, okay, how do you be positive in the moment when that happens? I'm sorry, but I, I just don't think it's healthy. And I, I don't even think you can be like super positive. Yes, you can focus on what we did and what they achieved in their life. But in the moment when you first hear those new, that news, you can't be positive. So I was like, okay, well, that or I, I get injured. You know, it's still a negative, but it's the less severity. Or I drop a glass, you know, my, my favorite coffee mug in the morning. I drop that, you know, so it's all these negative things. So how can I apply it being less negative and i use this thing called one percent thinking because it's not about going from zero to a hundred percent positivity not even about 50 percent. it's one percent so and it's through asking yourself these three questions what happened all right so you're in reverse if you're using that car analogy and something negative just happened we're in reverse what happened you're not actually trying to do anything you're not trying to be positive you're not trying to be negative but what identify what it is that actually happened so you can actually know what you're dealing with, okay? So that is the first element. What happened? How did it happen? All right? So you really need to take it, take it, get an understanding of the mechanisms of that cause what happened. Okay, like just to understand if your family member died, like knowing that, okay, this person is not here anymore. So you're starting the grieving process. 
and what happened is, is, is they died um, from whatever. That's how it happened. You broke a glass. What happened? You broke your favorite glass. How did it happen? Well, I was thinking about what I'm doing later this afternoon. I wasn't really concentrating. Right? These are, this is a trivial one, but it matches with something more like severe. So it's what happened. How did it happen to understand the mechanisms? Now, here's where you went from neutral to into first gear. Where do I now need to focus in order to move forwards? But the whole point of this, it sounds really simple and it is really simple, but it's only helpful if you apply it. But what, what I've done with thinking 1% at a time, one step at a time, one small piece at a time is given everyone a process to follow. When you break your favorite glass, when you get fired from a job, when you, um, you lose a loved one and you drop your phone and you crack your screen. You know, all these sort of trivial things, but also pretty heavy things that can make a significant impact in your life. What happened? How, that's in reverse. So you're stopping going backwards, identifying what happened. How did it happen? You're in neutral. And now you start moving through the gears. Where do I now need to focus in order to move forward? Now, that's not positive. That's not like rah, rah, let's go. Yeah, 100%. I'm going to smash life and I'm going to win this thing. You know, that's not positive. That's not positive. But it's not negative, which is why I call it less negative. And it's just that one thought at a time of being less negative through 1% thinking to helping you overcome an obstacle or a setback that you either created in your life or it came to you in terms of adversity. Got it, got it, got it. Okay, I like that. <laughs> I like that. That's a That's a good way of explaining it because when something traumatic happens, it's like, yeah, like you're going to, uh, it, it's not just going to be, okay, it's positive, positive, positive. You're not, you got to sort of work your way into just taking those next steps to just get out of that sort of state of maybe, you know, negativity. And it doesn't happen overnight, right? It, I, I, I attribute it a lot of times when I'm coaching individuals is like we talk about one step at a time. It's like pick one healthy habit to adapt and just do that for, you know, weeks maybe a month until that habit becomes something that you're not even thinking about it just you do it and then you can sort of take that next thing i think sometimes when people try to take a lot on at once <laughs> that nothing ends up happening so uh yeah I, th I think we get caught up in in the acute phase of things like the right now i want i want to change i know why i want to change because that's important you know if you want to if you want to do something in your life achieve something in your life change something in your life you gotta know why you want to do it because that's bottom line. That's your internal motivation, right? We know that uh, internal motivation is so much more helpful than external. So we've got to know why. But it's a case of when you know why, you still need to be able to go through the process of what it is you're trying to, to accomplish. But then even if you're strong with your why and knowing the processes of how to get there, so edge that education piece, if you're trying to do everything and you're looking at it from a small perspective, like change and success takes time, but everyone wants it right here and right now. Not that, oh, I want to be successful in 10 years. Like the way that I look at things is, uh, yeah, like I'm, if I achieve this goal in 10 years, just to use a random number, like I will be happy. That will be a success. That will be great. However, the principles and the processes I'm putting in place are going to give me a chance to achieve that goal in three years. But I'm also going to be happy if it takes me 10. So I'm being like aggressive daily, but patient long term. 
Mm. So I want to try and do everything I can with through those principles and those processes. And this could be for anything in life. However, at the same time, it's not about setting realistic goals. It's not about setting safe goals. It's about understanding that to be truly successful, to achieve big goals, as you said, like with, with your clients, is just take one thing and be aggressive with that daily. Do the best that you can do that day. And then the next day, stay aggressive in focusing on what you can do to achieve that thing that day, that process, that principle you need to do, that, that sequence of events. But also know that, okay, if it takes me those 10 years, those 12 years, that one year, that's going to be a success. However, the principles and the processes that you put in place, it's going to give me a chance if I stick to those to achieve it in a shorter period of time. And it's having that, uh, that, that flexibility and that thinking, in my opinion, in my experience. And there's also, you know, certain studies that show certain things like this. There's more people who are being successful. Now, how would you um, recommend someone that maybe wants to get into running, not necessarily even ultra marathoners? Uh, how would you go about that? Would you like for like what you did? It sounds like you picked an event. <laughs> like, granted, it was a bit extreme, but you picked that event to work towards. Do you recommend that maybe for someone who's looking to get into um, running as it's, sort it, of a, yeah? To a degree, it's like recommending the healthiest food in the world. Like there's, there's multiple, there's mm-hmm. not one. <laughs> yeah. So the ways that I would do it is, uh, yeah, pick an event. So then you've got a goal to aim for. Then you've got a target that can help with a bit. That's a bit of external motivation. External motivation isn't bad, um, but that can motivate you because you're an accountability. You, you've paid your, your 50 bucks entry fee or you know however much it is. So there you go. You're accountable now. You're invested. You're right. financially invested in this thing. Um, so that's, that's something that's helpful. Joining a running club mm. is great because in running clubs, they're all over the world. Even things like park run, you know, free 5K on a Saturday morning all over the world. You meet new runners, you meet new people. You become part of the running community and it's free every Saturday morning around the world. So uh, become part of the running community, whether it's a run club, there are so many that are free. You know, Google, there's this thing called Google. You Google where a local running club is, mm-hmm. and I'm pretty sure you'll find one. Um, or Park Run is a great way to inject yourself into a running community. Um, find a coach. Well, if you've got a family member who runs or a friend that runs or a friend of a friend, connect uh, and see. I think joining community, being part of that running community would be really helpful. Um, and then don't overthink it. Like We all can run. Pretty much, you know, ninety nine percent of the well, that's that's my own number, but let's just say the majority of the, of the population can run. Uh, they look at these ten k's. They look at half marathons. They look at marathons. They've got ultra marathons. Again, I can't do that. Well, not everyone started off with a hundred mile race as their first race. Maybe your big event is I want to be able to complete a five k running and walking. That is okay. You're allowed to walk in running races. That's cool. So just start by going out, maybe going for a run around your block. It might take you three minutes, it might take you two minutes. Go and run for a minute and go, did I enjoy that? No, that sucked. Okay, well, maybe you don't really want to run. But if you're like, actually, this is really cool. Okay, the next day, can I run three minutes? Can I run four minutes? Stuff like that. So it's, don't overthink it, I guess, is probably the simplest answer. And hopefully there's been a few ideas for people to try if, if someone does want to get into running. This might be a, a extreme question or broad, but what what 
some of the things that you've learned through your experience with running that you could that you wish you knew when you were you know maybe five six years ago that you, you can that you apply now that you know that you've learned yeah in terms of life or, or for running let's say for running yeah okay <laughs> um yeah let's say for running well i, I definitely learned that uh, it's important to have a nutrition plan and a hydration plan rather than just say okay i know i need to have like you know, 300 calories an hour if I'm, say, doing a marathon or an ultramarathon. Um, and sometimes, I'll, like, I've known this from my own education, my own background, and working with other athletes, but it, I didn't always necessarily have, like, this this plan to know, okay, like, these foods are this amount, this is that, and I'm going to have these foods in the first, you know, like, few hours, and I'm going to have these foods in the next few hours and all these sort of things. So really properly having a nutrition plan and a hydration plan, knowing how much electrolytes you're having, how much fluid you're having, um, dependent on the the um, the temperature and the climate and things like that. So I knew what the body needed, but it was actually having a out and out proper plan. And it's not one necessarily was all about the numbers and you have to do this every minute or whatever, but it's just sort of having a loose plan, knowing okay, this is this is then. This is then, this is then, and that's been really helpful. Um, and, and I think also it's it's kind of tricky because I've been an athlete my entire life. Um, there's definitely sort of elements of, you know, people say, oh, how important recovery is and things like that. That wasn't really for me because as an athlete, I knew how helpful recovery was. Mm. Um, but I guess in terms of running, it was the different types of sessions how they can improve your fitness, your speed, your stamina, your endurance, all these types of things as well. So diving down into the science of that a little bit more, and then that's how, that's after I did sort of that, I moved into a little bit more focused on running and ultra running um, when I did that maybe about 10 years ago. Um, but yeah, so I guess I guess there's a couple of things that I've really learned um, through my running journey. And uh, I noticed uh, you've run... Oh, you've run down Mount Everest, is that correct? <laughs> That's correct. Tell me, yeah, yeah. Tell me a little bit about that. I'm curious. Yeah, I know it's it's a good like, it's a good good um catch line, right? Yeah, it's a good, uh, yeah. So I I, just, I went out to Nepal um to run the world's highest ultra marathon, which is down Mount Everest from just near base camp. Mm. Um, so the hardest part of the whole race is getting to the start line because mm. you're spending twelve days trekking up to to base camp, which is uh. What five thousand four hundred meters? Um, so what's that? I don't know. It must be like seventeen, eighteen thousand feet, um, maybe more. Um, How long did that yeah. take? How long did that take to get the base camp? You said twelve days. Twelve so days. We had some acclimation days as well. Uh, it's about uh, 40, 40 miles um, to to go up there. And, but what I did initially was I reached out to the race director and said, Hey, like, I'm this adventure dude. I do these crazy things. Are there any Nepalese ultra runners who speak somewhat English who live high up in the rural mountains that I could maybe go and stay with and learn from and just have like this really cool adventurous experience? Very happy to pay my way and all the rest of it. I'm not looking to commercialize it or anything. I just want to have a cool adventure. And he wrote back and said, like, Yeah, well, I've got, I, I know two guys. Who speak a bit of English, that was cool. So I actually spent like five weeks high up in the rural mountains where like there are no tourists that go there. Mm. You know, it's not on the tourist trail. We're talking like a two buses, twelve hours in total, plus a, you know, 
a full day hike over the mountains and villages with like two and three shack, like mud shacks, no running water, no electricity, no toilets, nothing like this, sleeping next to buffaloes and chickens and goats. Um, it was, and you know, holes in the living room floor. How many weeks did, how many weeks, I'm sorry, how many weeks did you do that for? Five weeks. So you went, you went there and you were with that, uh, what is it called? I'm sorry. Uh, the individual who takes you up and down the mountain. Um, well, Sherpa. Sherpa, that's right. So you stayed, you were with a Sherpa for, for that and long? Then, well, yeah, they were, one of them worked as a Sherpa, but they were just runners. Okay. Um, so I lived with two, two families, um, and two, like two runners. So I spent like three weeks with one and two weeks with another. And then we flew to, uh, um, Kathmandu, back to Kathmandu, or we got back to Kathmandu, I should say, and then flew up to Lukla, which is the airport, um, when you go up to Everest. And then we spent 12 days trekking up to Everest, um, and then ran back down. And it took me 12 hours, I think it was. Um, I struggled with a, um, parasite called Jadia from untreated water. Mm. And, uh, so I didn't eat or drink anything for the final four days of, of the trek. Um, I was literally vomiting and I had diarrhea, which is water basically water from my muscles mm. um, because I, I was putting nothing in my body and i was just losing weight my, my arms and my legs were absolutely ripped because just the water from my muscles are just getting dispelled because of this parasite the body's trying to flush it out um and then that was like, for like four days before the event started and then i got up in the morning of the race and Fumbled my way down the mountain to finish the world's highest ultra marathon covering just over 40 miles in 12 hours Wow, that's quite the story. <laughs> yeah. When you're going through something like that, how it, how do you get through it mentally? Mm, mm, that's a, that's a great question, and it's one of the things that I do a lot with my athletes is is a mental strength side side of things, and I work with I mentor athletes all around the world, mainly elite athletes from sort of like high school and college age groups who are sort of one or two steps away from being professional or one or two steps away or one step away from going to the Olympics at various sports. And I mentor them in terms of a part of it is mental strength, but it's also just the the lifestyle of, of how to achieve your best because I've been there and I've done that. But the mental strength side of things is it's a really key, it's a really interesting piece because a lot of people think, okay, if I'm not a professional athlete, I don't need to like do visualization or mental strength training. But here's the thing, like we're all high performers. You know, we're all high performers. High performance for me is just trying to uh, achieve your best, trying to achieve one little bit more above your best. So there's a kid at school and he gets four Ds one year at the end of his report card. And then the next year he gets two Cs and a D. He's a high performer. Because he's achieved more than what he's achieved before. So he's, he's performing at a higher level. So we can train three things. Our body, our craft. So a skill. Um, if you're, if you're an athlete, if you're a salesperson, you, you can change, you can um, train your, your sales skills, um, stuff like that. If you're in marketing, you can, you can become a better marketer by training that. We can train our mind, but training our mind can dictate whether or not we actually go through with training our skills, our craft, or we're actually training our body to stay healthy. So I think it's a really important piece that a lot of people in daily life is missing. And part of it is they don't know how. And part of it is they have this imposter thing of like, well, I'm not an athlete. Why do I need to do mental strength training? Right. So I have basically, I bought into this whole concept of 
sports psychology, mindset, mindfulness in like the late 1990s when I was a 14, 15 year old kid um, playing for uh, my state about to go to the national championships in soccer. And we got this performance coach, I'm doing air quotes here for people who aren't watching. Uh, we got this performance coach in and basically she laid us down in a room, lights off, candles, incense burning, and she guided us in meditation. Now we're 14, 15 year old boys in the, in the mid nineties here in Australia, in a, not a massive sport in that country, but I, I bought into it. I was like, this stuff is awesome. We did muscle relaxation, we did breathing protocols. And I was like, this is fantastic. This is one way that I can train my body to be a better athlete. All my teammates were like messing about, slapping people in the head and kicking people in the butt and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. But I bought into it. So from the age of 14, I have been practicing mental strength training my entire life. So then you get to an adventure. It's a long way of sort of setting up my answer to your question. But I got, I got to running down Mount Everest in a really, really sorry and, and, and sad state. And I had done a, you know, 30 years of, of mental strength training and almost. So it was things like, okay, focus on uh, what I can control. How do you do that? Well, be present. How do you be present? Okay. I've got self-aware. I've got being need to be self-aware of what I'm feeling, what I need. What are my key fundamentals? I need to eat. I need to drink. I can't. Okay. I need to keep comfortable. So I had all these, um, uh, these tools that I was able to use and in this toolbox. So I would get to a point where I would be able to keep putting one foot in front of the other, get to the bottom of the mountain and something else happened or I felt ill. I vomited. I need to go to the bathroom. I needed to have a nap. You know, I fell over all these things. I was like, okay, what can I control? Being self-aware of how I feel and what do I need? One of my key fundamentals and being present in what I'm trying to achieve and knowing why I'm, I'm, I'm there in the first place. And the flip side with this was I had no other option because it was either get myself down or get a helicopter and you know, helicopters are way too expensive. So I just had to figure out a way. So it's being able to have these tools. However, these tools only come from you spending time prior to the adversity, prior to the trauma, prior to the adventure you go on and sharpening them. So it's understanding what they are, how to use them, and then practicing, practicing and practicing them before you need them. So when you do need them, you can go like, boom, here's a toolbox. Okay, what's going to work? Does this one work? No. Does that one work? No. Does this one work? Oh, yes, that's helped me take that next step. And that's how I've been able to um, continually achieve these big ultra endurance goals. I think it's also helped me move past my mental health uh, issues that I went through as well, because that was always installed with me of, of, of using different procedures and protocols to help me move forward in life. And now this is what I, this is what I speak about on stage to audiences from different industries in the corporate world to conferences and stuff like that to athletic teams to professional clubs and just trying to share my knowledge as, as, as you do in, in what your line of work is, is paying it forward to use your phrase. Um, I have these skills, these experience, and I just want other people to, to use them to help them be the best that they can be. Yeah. So you talk about these tools, uh, and starting meditation at an early age, and that's something that you've been practicing, like you said, for what thirty years. Uh, what do you recommend someone doing if they want to start, you know, utilizing meditation and being present and things like that into their lives? Carve out a time 
in a day and dedicate that to your meditation time. I think that's that is the first step. Don't just say, yeah, I'm going to meditate five times a day. I'm going to meditate for 20 minutes or whatever. Actually put it in your diary. It's a non-negotiable. Right now, I would just be like, whenever. If you know that you've got this five-minute break between um, finishing work and, and picking the kids up from school and you walk to your car at the office and you drive 20 minutes, but you've got a bit of a buffer, boom. When you go into the car, that's when it starts. That's your meditation time. Make a time daily that you can actually stop and allow yourself a chance to be present. So dedicating a time to it. And I, and I like to tell people who are asking that same question is, don't start with half an hour, you know. Start with a minute. Start with a minute. Just set your phone, timer, throw it next to you, and just sit there and focus on one thing, whether it's your breath, whether it's a sound, whether it's a smell, but just try and use one sense and focus on one thing. And that is that is my advice. Like, I don't really know if there's a whole lot of science involved in that. Like, I, I, I've read a little bit on neuroscience and on meditation. You know, I've read all these different studies. We know they're helpful, but what I've just um, prescribed, I just feel like it's a great place to start. And then figure out what works focusing on your breath if you're like wow this is really cool i get lost in that minute goes no time i'm five minutes now i can focus on my breath and i just feel really calm afterwards fantastic you found what works for you sometimes i've had people who are going like i just like to focus on one sound and it can zone me out or a smell i can smell something can i just focus on that and i found that being really helpful and even moving sometimes i will i will just go for a walk and just try and not feel or think of anything. I'll let the thoughts come and I'll let them go. But I'll just do it while I'm moving. So I think it's it's finding what works for you. But at the same time, breaking it down to just start with like a minute a day and then going from there And when you know sort of what works for you. But it's about initially dedicating that time to just start and do it consistently. Yeah, I love that because it is something you have to practice. It doesn't like just I, I meditate. I, I don't I'm not like I try to be consistent. There are days I miss, but like I'll do, usually do like 10 minutes or whatever it is in the morning. And it, it definitely takes time. But but it's like anything else. It's a craft that you have to sort of just practice. And is this something that you continue to do pretty much on a daily basis or for yourself? I, I would love to say, yeah, I meditate every day, but the reality is, I don't. <laughs> you know, I'm human. I, I forget. Um, I'm, I'm lazy. Sometimes I couldn't be bothered. Like, I know that's the most ridiculous thing to say. I couldn't be bothered to sit still and focus on my breath. Or I couldn't right. be bothered to sit there and have no thoughts. Like, it's so, it's so silly saying it, but I'm human. Like, and, and I'm not, and I'm not perfect by any means. And I, I talk about, I've got all these tools and I've been practicing mental strength and meditation for all this amount of times, but, I'm like, I'm, I'm not perfect. And, and I don't do this every day. Like I do it most days and it might only be for a couple of minutes. It might be five times one minute where I will stop. And I don't, these days I don't need to dedicate a time because I will always make time if I realize I'm into the afternoon and I feel a bit, I just need a minute. Then I'm like, okay, boom. I, I need to just turn my phone off or I need to set a timer on my phone and throw it to, throw it to the other side of the room. And just be still and be present and, and do that meditation process, whether it's five minutes, whether it's one minute, whether it's 20 minutes, half an hour, whatever. So I am like that. I do probably, if I had to say on average, I would say four to five times a week, 
like four to five days a week, I would say. Some some weeks it's every day, you know, depending on my situation. I travel a lot and sometimes I just forget because everything changes, my schedule changes, um, and they're all excuses. I completely understand that. <laughs> but I'm not trying to paint a perfect picture that no, I do this and I'm you know, I've been doing it for so long and I'm I'm amazing at it. I'm not I'm, I'm human like everyone else, just like I have negative thoughts. When I'm deal, dealt with dealing with adversity, yeah, am I always less negative? No, I have negative thoughts. I think detrimental things. But what I like, what I realized, is because I've done all this work in the past, because I've sharpened all these tools, because I've spent probably years practicing, focusing, developing, curating, all these things to help me be um, who I am today from a mental strength, from a mindfulness perspective, when I have negative thoughts, when they come into my head, or when I don't spend, create time to meditate, I catch myself really quick. Instead of letting that negative thought spiral for a minute, three minutes, five minutes, a day, a week, a year, and go down a really, really deep hole, I'll catch it within a minute, within 30 seconds and go, whoa, where's that coming from? Okay, let's understand that. Why is why am I thinking that? Is there any truth to it? Where did I get to this point? Okay. And then all of a sudden that 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 reverse to use my gear stick analogy from being less negative, I'm going backwards. I'm having negative thoughts. But instead of flooring it, as soon as I feel the car moving backwards, I'm like, whoa, 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 put the foot on the brake. But still in reverse. Put the foot on the brake. Let's figure out what's going on here. And then that, that allows me to then move from being negative, having a negative thought, but not acting on it, and then taking the steps forward to be less negative and then be positive out of it. So unlike everyone else, I still have negative thoughts and have you know detrimental thoughts and stuff like that and don't meditate for days on end. But I catch myself pretty quick because of all the work I've done and the principles and the processes that I've implemented into my life. And I continue to pra um, practice on a daily basis as well. Yeah, I love that. And I'm, I'm big into uh, like trying to stay present. It, it's not always that easy. I, I'm a big I'm a big golfer. And, you know, it's, you don't want to. Yeah, you don't want to. Yeah, that, that you don't want to get ahead of yourself. You don't want to think about what just happened. And and so I think. You know, having like you said, tools in the toolbox can help you in sport, but also just in life when things are chaotic. It's like um, being able to focus on your breath and just say present. Easier said than done, but the more you do it on your own, whether it's five, ten minutes, whatever it is, you can apply that to other areas, and it, it can pay, pay dividends. Yeah, a hundred percent. And the catchphrase I use for myself is "respond, don't react." And yeah. for me, the difference is reacting is taking action or not taking action, whether it's verbally, um, physically, emotionally, um, without thinking, that's reacting, res uh, responding, or, or to have a response, is to create space between the stimulus and the action, like Viktor Frankl mentioned in his book, um, um, Search, for, uh, Search for Meaning, is um, be able to create space so you can think that's the difference between reacting and responding, having an ability to stop and think before you take action, whether it's physically, um, mentally, emotionally, or that action you take might be not taking an action, right? Not allow, not acting on a on an emotion, not saying that thing, not doing that thing. That could be the correct response, 
But if you just react and do it without thinking, then that can be detrimental. So my catchphrase is always respond, don't react. And I do that by doing my best to be present and thinking about what I should or shouldn't be doing in that next moment. Well, look, this is great. Um, we could probably go on and on for, for a long time, but we're, what's, what's next up for you? I know you're doing a lot of speaking and um, what's on your, your agenda for the next year or so. Yeah, next year or so is uh, my calendar is getting booked up with speaking gigs, which is which is great. Um, mm-hmm. I'm I'm letting that play out because uh, I'm enjoying uh, speaking more and more often around the world and, and hosting different events and speaking at conferences and, and just That's delivering fun. my 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 talk, my messages, my my story as well, which is which is pretty cool. You've got a snippet of it. Um, so I'm letting that play out. Uh, I am working through an injury at the moment, and I'm just one of those random ones. I can't really put my finger on it, um, but I'm still training. But I'm not putting anything big in the calendar because I know my next uh, twelve, well, my next nine nine months is is pretty busy. But as I said before, I, I've got some some big things in the pipeline that I'm starting to have conversations with because obviously these things take time um, to organise. Like you know, I'm talking, I'm doing potentially doing something that's a month long. So it takes a lot more than just one month to organize it. So sometimes these things take years and I'm in the process of doing that and then writing out my training plan for, to, to make sure I'm I'm fit for that. So I'm in that process. Um, but yeah, so that's what's, what's what's happening with me. And, uh, yeah, I'm, I've sort of committed to sitting down and and starting uh, writing another book. Uh, I've co-authored a couple other books as well as my own autobiography, Chasing Extreme. Um, so yeah, so I want to, and it's basically going to be filled with all these principles and processes that I, that I use and the stories that have created them. So it's not just a sort of a step-by-step book and, or, or these are all the things that I use. It's, it's actually got stories behind them. Right? So I enjoy writing. So I, I've committed to uh, some time each, each week and each month to start that process. Uh, I've got loads of notes, but just formulating into that. So. Yeah, hopefully in the next year or two, I'll have some sort of first draft and see where we go with that. Wow, that's that's exciting. And and uh, what about uh, actually? I'll forget to ask this last question, so I wanted to ask it: Is what one tip would you give an individual that wanted to get their body back to what it once was, like 10, 15 years ago? Um, and yeah, what one tip would you give that individual? Wow. wow. <laughs> I know it's a that, big one. That is a big question. What is one tip to get their body back 10, 15 years ago? Oh, I would say be kind to yourself because you're not the same person you were 10 or 15 years ago. Um, yeah, I think that's probably the biggest thing. I, I heard a quote. Um, I, I need to actually spend some time and dig it up to figure out who initially said it. Um, I've seen many people claim it, but the quote was something like, um, a, a man who views his life at 40, the same as when he was 20 has wasted 20 years. And I think that is, that sort of sticks with what I, what I said as a a tip is be kind to yourself because you're not the same person you were 10, 15 years ago. So um, give yourself a break if you miss a session, if you eat a piece of chocolate cake, if you whatever, you know, if you can't hit those targets or less steps or, or running or playing squash or playing tennis, you can't do it as much as you used to. Be kind to yourself because 
you're actually doing something. So I think that's really important to not beat yourself up if you are actually taking steps forward. That's my one tip. I like that. I like that. I completely agree. Because <laughs> definitely like the way I train now is a lot different than the way I trained when I was in my 20s. And yeah. uh, you have to sort of... And it, and it should be, right? And it right. Should be. It should be. Like, yeah, because, you know, would any of us really want to be doing all the same stuff we were doing in our twenties? <laughs> no, not really. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, this is great, Luke. I appreciate it. Where's the best place for people to find you? Yeah, I'm really easy to find online. Yeah. Uh, you can go to luketoberski.com. Uh, all my social media is Luke Toberski. Uh, you can type my name into Amazon, and you'll see my documentary. You'll see my documentaries. There's two on there. Uh, you'll see my book. Um, yeah, just my names. There's not a lot of us out there. There's a few, but not a lot of us, but I'm pretty much at the top of all the searches. So social media, luketoberski.com, it's all there. Reach out and I do all my own social media. So if you've got a question, if you've got a thought, if you just want to say hi, do reach out. I'm really easy to get a hold of and yeah, I'll reply to you and, and uh, let me know what you learned from uh, this conversation with Brian and I as well. I'd love to hear one thing that you learned from this conversation as well. Love that. Well, I will put uh, links in the show notes. And Luke, thanks so much for coming on and sharing all this. My pleasure, Brian. It's been a blast. Thank you for having me on. Thanks for listening to the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. I understand there are millions of other podcasts out there and you've chosen to listen to mine. And I appreciate that. Check out the show notes at briangrin.com for everything that was mentioned in this episode. Feel free to subscribe to the podcast and share it with a friend or family member that's looking to get their body back to what it once was. Thanks again and have a great day.